0: hello this is rabbi daniel Karopkin. welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by maimonides or rambam called more or guide for the perplexed this text has been studied for centuries by great scholars jewish and non-jewish alike it seeks to reconcile aristotelian and neoplatonic philosophy with the torah of our people and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. Hi, this is Daniel Karapkin speaking to you live from the webyeshiva.org Facebook live page. Um, for those who are trying to get on to the web yeshiva.org platform to be able to watch this, this shear, I apologize. We were having some technical issues. <clears throat> so as a result, I, I decided to get off the platform and make sure that the shear could at least be recorded live for people on Facebook. And we'll make sure that the webyeshiva.org platform gets a copy of the recording. We are studying Moreno Vuchim. And my name is Daniel Karapkin, and I'm uh, recording this year in Thornhill, Ontario, from the shul Beth Avraham Yosef of Toronto, that's where I'm the rabbi, and we've been studying Morin Avulchim for uh, a couple of years now, and today we are on the still in the first section, chapter 61, and we've been discussing the negative theology of God, and in particular, um, how it is Uh, counterproductive and actually brings about a a distorted view of God if we try to ascribe any positive attributes to the master of the universe. Now, we've gotten a little bit technical and philosophical in previous chapters. I want to share with you that the benefit of today's chapter is that it will not be overly technical, but rather we're going to be discussing um, a topic that is subsumed under this overall category of the negative theology of God. We're gonna be talking about the names of God over the next few chapters, and specifically, what the Rambam calls the Shem HaMephorash, which is uh, in the Pines edition, which we're going to be starting on page 147 today, is called the articulated name, Shem HaMephorash, or the explicit name. Now this this is this, go, this uh, name of God goes by a number of different names. It's known as the Shem Havaya. It has the four letters of Yud and Hey and Vav and He. And so, and it is known as the ineffable name because it is not permitted to pronounce this name. It is also known as the Tetragrammaton using the English technical terminology. Um, and it has four letters, and the Rambam wants to try and express to us how this name of God is different from all other names of God that appear in Tanakh, And that's the objective that he has in this chapter, the uniqueness of the Shem HaMepharash. And so for a change, we're actually going to start the text today. Um, all the names of God may He be exalted that are to be found in any of the books derived from actions. There is nothing secret in this matter. The Rambam has pointed out to us that the way that God is described in Tanakh are by his actions, and they are therefore not positive attributes or ascriptions to God himself, but rather describe things that emanate from God that we would ascribe to a human being if we were to see a human being behaving in this manner. So therefore, when we say that God is almighty, God is all capable, God is omnipotent, God is merciful, and God is benevolent, and so forth and so on, these are names that we ascribe to God based on the behavior that we see that God, the way that God is interacting with our universe. And there's nothing secret in this. The Rambam is later going to tell us that there's one other way that God is known in Tanakh, and that is using metaphorical or um, terms that are not actually accurate, but that describe in some way God being a perfect being, such as God being alive or, or God being eternal, and so forth and so on. But, he says, the only exception is one name. It is namely yud He vav hey. This is the name of God, may he be exalted, that has been originated without any derivation. Meaning that there is no other, um, there is no, and the way that uh, the commentaries explain what this term means, there is nothing else in the universe that is given that description. So, for example, the name Elohim. Elohim is one of the names of God, but it is also a name that is ascribed to judges or princes or people in a very powerful position. Um, Merciful is ascribed to God, but it is also ascribed to human beings who are also merciful, and so forth and so on. But there is no other being, no other existent thing that is given this four-letter name it's unique only to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. and for that reason it's called the articulated or the Shem HaMiforash. this means that this name gives a clear unequivocal indication of his essence may he be exalted on the other hand all the other great names give their indication in an equivocal way meaning using terms that are metaphorical and can be tra- defined in different ways being derived from terms signifying actions the like of which, as we have made clear, exist as our own actions. Even the name that is uttered instead of yud heh he is derived from a term signifying Lordship. Now here the Rambam assumes that we have certain knowledge that he hasn't provided for us yet. And that is something that is contained in the Talmud and is codified in Jewish law. And that principle is that whenever we find the word the tetragrammaton, the shamehamifarash, the yud and the hey and the vav and the hey, wherever we find it, we are not permitted to pronounce it in its in the way that it is spelled, but rather we use the word Adonai, which is spelled Aleph Dalid Nun Yud. And that name is a substitute for whenever we see the word yudke vavke That's the way I'm going to spell it, because out of reverence for that name, as we'll we'll see, it's known as the ineffable name, the name that shall not be pronounced because of certain uh, restrictions that are placed upon us by Jewish law. And uh, we always use the word Adonai instead of Yudke Vavke. Now, where does the Rambam get this from? So the Rambam gets this from, and he's going to actually cite the Talmudic passages towards the very end of the chapter. So I figured I would sort of put this as the frontal matter of the chapter. The first thing I'd like to ask of you to do normally, if we were on the webyeshiva.org platform, I would have I would be displaying the text on the screen. But if I could, please ask our viewers, if you wouldn't mind opening up another tab, go to the Facebook group Shi'ur uh, in Morenevuchim, and you'll be able to open up the PDF Yourself, and it's called, uh, and it's the PDF for Uchim, chapter sixty-one, and there is a passage from the Talmud Bavli, the Babylonian Talmud, tractate Sota. That's source number one, page thirty-eight A, Daf Chet Ahmed Aleph, and the Gemara says quotes a Brita which says Ko Bnei Yisrael. There is a verse in the Book of Numbers, chapter six referring to the priestly blessing that God told Aaron and his sons that they should bless the Jewish people with. And when you bless the people, says the Talmud, what God wanted the Kohanim to bless them with was beshem HaMifarash, with the ineffable name, meaning that even though normally this name should not be pronounced, I want the Kohanim, when they bless the Jews in the temple, to use the four-letter name in the way that it is pronounced. Now, asks the Talmud, Perhaps no. Perhaps when we're giving the priestly blessing in the temple, we should not pronounce it in its regular way, but rather we should use some kind of surrogate or substitute. So, Et Shemi. So therefore, the verse in uh, verse 27 of that chapter in Numbers chapter 6 says they shall place my name upon the jewish people which means shemi yuchadli. this is my name which is specified uniquely for me so then the talmud asks yachol af bigvulin came you might think that this is true that we may use the explicit name the shem forash, outside of the temple as well ne'amar khan v'samu et shemi v'ne'amar lahalan lasum et shemo sham so the Talmud makes a connection uh, um, using texts that are very similar to each other, which is known as a Gezerah Shavah. The Gemara is making a, a textual connection between two verses. One is the verse by the priestly blessing, and the other one is the verse that is uh, placed, that is discussing uh, placing God's name in the temple, the, the, the place that God shall choose. Malah halan beita bechira, and that teaches me that the only time that we are allowed to uh, allowed to use the shem hamifarah in its in its in the way in, to vowelize it and verbalize it in the way that it is spelled is only inside the temple. This idea is also conveyed in the Sifri, which is a halachic midrash on Parshat Naso. That's in source number two, and we also have the same statement being made by the Mishnah in tractate Yoma. In regards to Yom HaKippurim. Some of you who may hear this Mishnah may sound familiar to you because it is part of our liturgy in the Yom Kippur service at Musaf, where we discuss how the Kohen Gadol, the high priest, did the priestly service on Yom Kippur. It says, that the priests and the rest of the nation who were standing in the temple courtyard when the, the high priest, when they would hear the explicit name of God in its four-letter tetragrammaton uh, pronunciation, uh, emitting from the mouth of the high priest, they would bow down and prostrate themselves and fall on their faces and they would say, and they would say, blessed be the name of the glory of his kingdom forever. We also now uh, discover that not only is the Shem ha reserved for um, the temple use only, either for the priestly blessing or for the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur, but we also discover that there is a prohibition against enunciating that Shem HaMephorash in any other time. The Mishnah in Tractate Sanhedrin chapter 10, which is a very famous Mishnah for, to, to the Rambam in Moreh talks about people who have forfeited their share in the world to come. And according to Abba Shaul, which is one of the uh, rabbis who authored this Mishnah, he says that included in the category of people who have lost their share in the world to come are someone who pronounces the Shem vowelizing it according to the letters that appear before us, the Yud and the He and the Vav and the He. And now we have one more passage, which is at, in tractate, Pesachim, Page 50a, Psachim Dafnun Ahmed Aleph. This is source number five. And this is where we learn that a surrogate, when you're outside the temple, that should be used instead of the Shem HaMe is the, the name Aleph Dalid Nun Yud, which we pronounce Adonai. It says, This world is not like the next world. In this world, we see a name that is written as yud hey plus the other vav hey, the four-letter shem but we recite it as aleph Dalid nun yud. But in the next world, when we reach a certain level of perfection, and we will be, it will be appropriate for our stature in that next world, in that perfected world, to be able to pronounce that name adequately. So, nikra biyudhei v'nikhtav biyudhei. Then we will recite the name in the same way that it is spelled. And I'm not gonna go into the rest of that Talmudic passage because of constraints of time, but that seems to be the consistent message throughout that passage of Talmud, and it's at the end of the third chapter of tractate P'sachim, and I encourage you to look at it there. Now, this is therefore the Talmudic source for how we know that any time we find, either in our liturgy or when we're reading passages from Tanakh, where we see the Shem HaMephorash, we are to pronounce it as Aleph Dalid Nun Yod. This is codified in Shulchan Aruch, this is source number 6, in Orachayim uh, chapter 5, uh, the first Paragraph of Chapter Five. Kishiyazkir Hashem. Then, any time a person makes mention of God's name, Yechavein Perush Kriato Adon Hakol. A person should be thinking, in that the way that I am currently pronouncing the name, which is Adonai, means that God is master of all, because the word Adonai means Adon, the master. VYechavein and I should be thinking about the spelling of the name that he was, is, and will be. So this is just a very brief um, uh, cursory going over of the sources for how the Rambam knows what he knows, that whenever we're outside the temple in modern times, we do not pronounce the name, that we are not permitted to pronounce the name, we, we may even forfeit our share in the world to come if we pronounce the name, um, and therefore we use the word Adonai as a substitute. And the, the uh, Rambam says that the name that we use is de- uh, of Adonai is derived from a term signifying lordship. Um, and the Rambam cites for us, anytime we find the word Adon or Adoni, it means my master. Now, here the Rambam provides us with a very interesting grammatical idea. And that is, he asks the question, what is the difference between Adoni? And Adonai, Adonai usually means my masters in the plural, where you're talking to multiple people. But the Rambam says that, that cannot possibly be the meaning of Adonai when we ascribe it to God, because if that were the case, uh, then that would be implying multiplicity to to the ultimately, uh, you know, one deity. And what's interesting also is grammatically, we don't say Adonai with a patach with the I sound, but Adonoi with, with the comats, And therefore, there clearly is a difference. And the Rambam's thesis is based on the word Sarai versus Sarah. You know that uh, our matriarch Sarah, her name was originally Sarai, and it was changed to Sarah. And so the, um, the Rambam is of the opinion that when you look at the word, the difference between the word Sari and Sarai is very simple. Sari means that you are my master and my master um, alone, meaning that you are only the master over me, but you are not the master over anyone else, or you're not the officer over anyone else. When I say Adoni, it implies that you are the master of me, but you are not the master of anyone else. When I use the word Adonoi, with the Kamatz, under the Nun, then I'm saying that not only are you the master of me, you singular being are the master of me, but you are also the master over everything else. And that is what the name Adonoi implies. But again, it is a surrogate for the shem hamiflarash So he then goes on and he says, I have explained this to you, especially with regard to Adonai, because it is the most particularized of the commonly known names of God, may he be be exalted. For in case of all of the others, such as Shofet, Sodeik, uh, Chanun, Rachum, Elohim, it is manifest that they are used in a general way, as well as that they are derived, meaning that they are used in other contexts, in ways that are not referring specifically to God. And he I'm just skipping a little bit. He he points out that um, we only use the Shem HaMiforash as we pointed out, when the Kohanim are doing giving their priestly blessing and when the high priest is using it over the course of Yom Kippur. Because it is indicative of a notion with reference to which there is no association between God, may he be exalted, and what is other than he. And essentially, the reason why the Shem forash is unique is because it is not used in any other context except describing God. So what does it mean? So the Rambam doesn't have a clear explanation as to what the, the Shem HaVaya actually means. He says, perhaps, this is my theory, but I don't know for sure. All I can tell you is that based on my limited knowledge of the Hebrew language, says the Rambam, it seems to indicate something unique to the essence of God, and perhaps it indicates the notion of a necessary existence. Now, the reason why the Rambam is equivocating so much is because to suggest that the four letters of yud, hay, and vav, hay, imply that God was, is, and will be hayahov which is the normative way that we understand this four-letter name of God. Even that is unacceptable to the Rambam because if you recall, even the suggestion that God is infinite, was, is, and will be, is something that is odious to the Rambam because he believes that to even put God within a framework, within a vocabulary of chronology, is erroneous even by saying that God is infinite is erroneous because it implies that God in some way can be placed within a, time, within a framework of time but just that he is infinite within that time. But God exists outside of time, and therefore to even suggest that he was, is, and will be is in some way erroneous. And therefore he has to come up with an alternate suggestion, which is that the four-letter name, as we find it, suggests that God is a necessary existent being, which is unique to God, as we've explained in the previous chapters. And we go to the next paragraph, as for the other names all of them because of their being derived indicate attributes that is not an essence alone but an essence possessing attributes for this reason they produce in one's fantasy the conception of multiplicity i mean to say that they produce in one's fantasy the thought that the attributes exist and that there is an essence in a notion superadded to this essence and therefore the rambam wants to remind us all the other names that appear in tanakh have an occupational hazard that if you use them um, in reference to God, and that's your emphasis, then you're going to end up with a with an erroneous imagine, imagination or image of God in your imagination faculty, because you will imagine a God that has multiple attributes and that implies a multitudinous God when God is completely unitary. And it is for this reason, because of this occupational hazard, if we skip down in the paragraph, that the Rambam makes reference once again to the Talmudic passage from Tractate Brachot, page 33, which we learned in chapter 59. In that passage, if you'll recall, Rabbi Chanina was listening to a person recite the Shmon recite the silent prayer out loud, as he was the shliach tzibur, as he was the person leading the service. And he wanted to be motzi. He wanted to everyone to listen to his prayer and to have his prayer cover everyone else's prayer service. And he went on and on in giving multiple appellations to God, HaKel, HaGadol, HaGibor, VeHanora, VeHaIzuz, VeHayarui. And he went on with using multiple different kinds of adjectives to describe God. And after a few moments of doing this, the man finally stopped because he ran out of vocabulary. And Rabbi Hanina chastised him by saying, how come you can stop? It's impossible to stop because God is infinite in his praises. And not only that, but you're praising a king who is worthy of being lauded for possessing gold, and you're praising him by saying that he possesses silver, and you're inappropriately praising God. And Rabbi Chanina's conclusion was that were it not for the fact that the prophets gave us these, these three names—Hagadol, Hagibor, VeHanorah—that God is great, uh, mighty, and awesome—we would not even be able to use those words. And the Rambam points out that the reason why uh, Rabbi Hanina was so cautious about this was because he recognized that using positive names to a, to a, a, to describe Hashem is damaging because it creates again a fantasy in the mind of God as He is not truly in His in His true essence, and therefore the only name that is descriptive of god in a in a true form that he is the necessary existent being is the shame okay and we've covered this already so i'm going to move on a little bit forward um, and once again i want to go i want to skip to page 149 And I want to point out that at the end of the chapter, the last remaining section of this chapter, starting on the the paragraph that begins on page 149 until the end of the chapter, the Rambam wants to start a topic that he's going to be continuing uh, in chapter 62. And that is that the Rambam is aware of his fellow co-religionists who have come up with a decidedly erroneous, Definition of the Shem Hamiforash of God's four-letter name, and they feel that it has some incantational mystical value. So that if you use multiple iterations of the of the letters of Yud and Vav and you change the vowelization in some ways, or you configure those letters with other letters and in different permutations, you are able to garner some kind of supernatural effect. And the Rambam here is going to launch into a criticism of this kind of incantational belief that there's some magic that is contained with the name Yudhei and Vavhei. In, instead of taking that approach, the Rambam takes a decidedly rational approach that this name is nothing more than a name that is most descriptive of God as a necessarily existent being. It doesn't have any special supernatural powers to it. And this is of course where the Rambam is launching into a polemic against some of his contemporaries who are more mystically oriented in their view of what Judaism has to say and what is contained in the Torah. And therefore he writes as follows, and, and this is a, the beginning of a discussion that the is going to continue uh, in next week's discussion. Do not think anything other than this, meaning that what of what the meaning of the Shem Farash uh, is, and do not let occur to your mind the vain imaginings of the writers of charms, the writers of what we call kimeot, of amulets, or what names you may hear from them or may find in their stupid books, namely that they have invented, which are not indicative of any notion whatsoever, but which they call the names and of which they think that they necessitate holiness and purity and work miracles. All these are stories, that it is not seemly for a perfect man to listen to, much less even, you know, much less to believe. Don't even listen to these stories, and certainly don't even believe them. None is called the Shem HaMifarash, except the name having four letters that is written but not read in accordance with the sounds written down. For the sages have stated clearly, and here the Rambam launches into the sources that we started off with at the beginning of our discussion today, and he provides you with the source in Tractate Sota, which was Sota Daflamid Chet Ahmed Aleph, uh, which we quoted at the beginning of how we know that you can only use the Shem HaMeferash in the temple, also quoting the Sifri in the book of Ba'midbar. And then if we skip to the end of that, uh, at the bottom of this page, thus it has become clear to you that the articulated name is the name having four letters and that it alone is indicative of the essence without associating any other notion with it. For this reason, the sages have said of it that it is the name that is peculiar to me. It is unique to Hashem. And the Rambam also, uh, earlier in the chapter, made reference to the fact that this is the name that God possessed before he created the world, and it is the name that God will possess in Olam Haba as well, in the world to come as well. As it says in in Zechariah, uh, chapter 14, Hashem al kol haaretz, b'ayom Hashem That in the future world, like we saw referenced in Tractate Psachim, that in the future world, man will have a better ability to appreciate God in his truer essence. Man will have an enlightened, ennobled intellect and therefore, we'll have the ability to grasp this idea of Yudke Vavke, and therefore, that will be God's name, and God will no longer require any of these borrowed names, which um, which imply positive attributes. The Rambam says that will happen when man's intellect is finally perfected. Now, I shall make clear to you what has incited men to the beliefs with regard to the names, and I will make clear to you the root of this question, and I will strip it of its covering so that nothing doubtful remains unless you wish to lead yourself astray with reference to a chapter coming after this. And the Rambam basically says, I'm going to discuss these kinds of incantational beliefs in more detail and show you why they're so erroneous in the ensuing chapter. And that's something that we'll have to say for chapter 62. I do want to leave you with one final idea, and that is the Rambam in Hilchot Avodah Zarah, chapter 11, uh, code 11 states as follows. The Rambam is making reference to a statement that's made in Tractate Sanhedrin, that if a person gets bitten by a scorpion or a snake, Mutar and this is, by the way, in the handout, source number nine. al makom va'afilu A person is allowed to incant on the snake bite or on the scorpion bite even if it's the Sabbath. Now why would I think that you cannot do this on the Sabbath? So as the commentaries explain, we are limited by what kinds of speech we're allowed to engage in on the Sabbath. For example, we're not allowed to discuss business on Shabbos. And so therefore you might have thought that incantational speech is also limited on the Sabbath and the Rambam says that it is not. You may incant, you may recite an incantation over a snake bite, if you feel that this will help alleviate the toxic effects of the snake bite or the scorpion bite. And the reason you can do this is so that you can restore your thoughts and you can help get yourself emotionally settled, because a person gets very, very distraught after getting a snake bite or a scorpion bite. He thinks, oh no, my life is over. Now, it could be that your life is over, or it could be that you'll just get ill from a scorpion bite, which is usually what happens when people get bitten by a scorpion, it gets inflamed, it gets infected, and a person can develop a fever. Now, if you're upset about that and you want to be able to calm yourself, you're allowed to recite an incantation using different permutations uh, of the way that God's name is going to be represented, as we're going to discuss in the next chapter. An Afal Hadavar Mo'il Klum. And the Rambam writes, but you should know, these kinds of incantations have no real effect at all. They are purely a placebo to help a person calm his thoughts. But Hoilu but the Rambam writes, But the rabbis still permit you to do this, even though it has absolutely no efficacy whatsoever. But if psychologically it'll help you calm down, fine, go ahead and do it. There's no no harm, no foul. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. But if it makes you feel better, you're allowed to do this. Now, why would I think it's not permitted to do it? Because if in the course of making an incantational recitation, a person believes he's summoning other gods or other forces that are other than God, this would be a form of idolatry. And the Rambam writes, no, this does not uh, impinge on the prohibition of idolatry. Since you ultimately believe in God, but you're using incantations that reference different permutations of divine letters, um, you're not committing idolatry. Are you doing anything that has efficacy at all? Absolutely not. There's nothing to incantations. Incantations are nonsense. They're stupid, as the Rambam writes in this chapter. But... If it'll help calm you down after you get bitten by a scorpion or a snake, gesund a hate, as we say in French, go right ahead and knock yourself out. Now, I want to say, this is where it probably is a good place for us to stop because we're already over time. But I want us to consider that the Rambam, as a rationalist, does not believe in the occult at all when it comes to religious Jewish religious practice. And that's the reason why he takes this approach, and that's why we're discussing it, because it involves a, a combination of different letters having to do with God's name. The Rambam's going to discuss this more thoroughly in chapter 62 next week, and that's, that's where we will continue this discussion. We'll talk about the Vilnagon, who was highly critical of the Rambam, uh, and felt that the Rambam was overly rational, having been adversely affected by uh, Greek philosophy. And this is a good place for us to hold it. We will continue Bezrat Hashem next time. Take care now.